welcome to a new episode of Land Grant Holy Land in Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. On today's episode, we are in conversation with Josh from College Football Nerds. If you are unfamiliar with College Football Nerds and aren't sure what to make of that name, uh, we have been including their computer model predictions in our Game Day Tailgate podcast since last season, and they put together great videos breaking down the biggest matchups every week from a statistical and analytical perspective. You can find their videos on YouTube, and you can follow them on Twitter at CFB Nerds. On today's episode, Josh and I talk about what can be learned from a statistical standpoint from both Ohio State and Penn State's very different season opening games, how the weird pandemic altered schedules are impacting advanced analytics, and what Josh thinks will happen in Saturday's primetime matchup between the Buckeyes and the Nits. All right, with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with Josh from College Football Nerds. All right, Josh, I appreciate you bringing some intelligence and sanity to our podcast because it's something that we generally lack in these discussions. Um, But what's interesting to me is, is that we've had a month and a half to two months of college football. And for those of us in the Big Ten footprint and and fandoms, all we could do is talk about potential or what might be or what we think is going to happen. We now have some games that we can look at, we can dissect, we can look at the numbers. Looking specifically at the Ohio State, Nebraska, and then of course Penn State and Indiana games from this weekend that were wildly entertaining for different reasons, especially for Ohio State fans. Was there anything specific from either of those games or from both of those games that you took away that you think can be predictive and informative for the Ohio State-Penn State matchup coming up on Saturday night? I think the most interesting thing from those two games is really looking at how Indiana compares to Nebraska. Uh, In a lot of ways, Nebraska either performed as well uh, as Indiana or in many cases better, especially offensively. And I think that's crazy to say given the results in those games, but um, obviously it had a lot to do with turnovers and other things. And and I want to break that down in terms of advanced stats a little bit. So Nebraska was... um, Eight yards per attempt in the game, 5.8 yards per carry. Now, a lot of that, understand, is garbage time. But the point was they're actually you know, moving the ball at a decent clip. And their problem, if you were in Nebraska, is you couldn't pass. So on you know, looking at advanced statistics, you have a stat called success rate. Uh, Nebraska was only 11% in the game on passing downs. Uh, in the first, third, and fourth quarter, Nebraska never had a successful play on passing downs, meaning basically that converted a uh, first down in a uh, long yardage situation that really crippled them. And it caused them to be low on uh, low on points. And it caused them to, um, you know, have to settle for punts or field goals or what have you in situations where they've been driving the ball a little bit. Um, If you flip it around and look at the Indiana game though, you know, you, you might think Indiana was a lot less successful, but you'd be kind of wrong. I mean, Indiana was only 20% on passing downs themselves. And Penn State was 54% on passing downs. Ohio State was 60%. So even in this one statistic, the difference wasn't really that substantial. Um, Moreover, Ohio State versus Nebraska, in terms of overall success rate, um, overall, Ohio State was 60% success rate, Nebraska 58. 
And through the first three quarters, Nebraska actually led Ohio State in overall success rate because Nebraska was actually a lot more effective on standard downs, meaning first and first and ten, second and seven situations. Nebraska moved it pretty well through three quarters. Um, conversely, you know, Penn State led forty nine percent to thirty three percent, so twenty six percent gap between Penn State and Indiana, and a two percent gap from Ohio State Nebraska. And that's including a fourth quarter where Nebraska was literally zero percent success rate. So, you know, you, you take all that away and you look at a box score where Indiana was 4.7 yards per attempt and 1.6 yards per carry to, again, Nebraska being 8 and 5.8. And you start to realize, um, you know, Indiana didn't do very well. They got outgained 488 to 211. They were dominated and on the box margins. I, I think the key to that game really was the quarterback play, the efficiency of the quarterback play the ability to avoid negative plays in critical situations and the ability to generate explosive plays in chunks. And I think that's what separated the two results, um, despite every down performance not being quite as different as you might guess. So obviously the turnovers, like you said, and the quarterback play specifically, I think you were mentioning Sean Clifford from Penn State. Those are the factors where if the numbers look pretty similar, but the final scores don't, that in this case is where that difference comes from. Is there anything that you can say that this is something that will be repeatable in the future? Is this just one of a, a fluky kind of thing? Is it just the way the ball bounces, kind of the the turnover luck percentage? Or is this something where we've seen trends where this might be something that Penn State continues to do, despite the fact that they dominated the game in most areas? Do we think that this might be something when they're playing a team like Ohio State next week or even moving on to the future where some of these bad traits that ended up losing the game despite being dominant in a lot of ways might continue to poke their, their heads up for, for other potential upsets or, or defeats? So I think the, re, you know, the repeatable part of it is down to the quarterback play. Um, you know, even when you look back to last year, Sean Clifford – wasn't successful on a consistent basis. He ended up with as an 8.3 yard per attempt passer. We say 8.5 yards per attempt is a very effective passer. We these days you see people higher. Matt Jones is currently over 13 yards per attempt in conference only play, uh, and the record I think was 11.6 yards per attempt from Kyler Murray two years ago. So, you know, 8.3 was was a good, not great result from last year, right? But you know, you got to dissect that. Uh, when Clifford played high-end defenses, you know, at Ohio State, he was 4.2 yards per attempt. Iowa, 4.9 yards per attempt. Michigan State, 5.9. Michigan, 7.3. He basically never had a good day against a good defense. He put up 12-plus yards per attempt on Idaho, Buffalo, and Maryland. Um, and the rest of the way, um, you know, he, he actually missed the Rutgers game. He was more in the, like, the 6-8 to eight yard range. Um those aren't good results. And I think what we're seeing from Penn State and Clifford is, you know, I'm going to be blunt. I don't think Clifford's a very good quarterback, uh, but Clifford can do okay. some things. Uh, he can do some things with his ability to run the ball, especially that they yeah. lean on. That's uh, the thing that's going to be scary for a lot of Ohio State fans that I want to ask about in a minute. But yeah, that's very much on the minds of a lot of Buckeye fans. Right. But, uh, you know, in terms of his ability to pass the ball, he's limited. And what you're seeing is, Penn State's going as far as the RPO can carry them. Um, we talked a lot on our channel for years about the spread and how the spread offense puts up gaudy statistics that don't always really translate to high-end games. Um, 
And, and it's one of the reasons we like moving away from Urban Meyer in that scheme and we really like Ryan Day's scheme because it's a little more power-based. But, you know, when, you know, Penn State plays inferior competition or when they when things are rolling, they, uh, the opposing defense is on their heels and Clifford gets those easy reads, right? Do you hand the ball off inside or do you throw it over the top depending on how the linebacker drops? And he's good enough to make those throws if he's got enough space. But when he plays good defenses, you know, good defense can actually have learned to let the linebackers sink, for example, on that slant RPO throw. Um, and they'll just sort of deal with the run at four to five yards per carry because they know at some point you get a negative play and you'll stop it. They occasionally kind of bring the blitz and they let, let yourself bleed a little bit, but take away that deep slant. If you can do that and get Penn State in a third and, you know, third and long situation, they're just, I mean, they're just not great. Um, and I think Clifford, when he's in a position where he has to force plays, things go awry. Um, the notable thing in the Indiana Penn State game was, you know, not only did he have some bad interceptions, like a floated ball on a screen pass, but Indiana had one quarter in the whole game where their st- uh, standard down success rate was really good. And it was in the second quarter, they were 67%. Um, 0% in the first quarter, 0% in the third. But what it let them do is they had this like big chunk of explosive success that let them get a 17-7 lead and Clifford was playing from behind. And that killed him. And I think that's probably the problem that you could see in this game as well because I think Ohio State's offense, one, I think Fields is a lot more consistent. Um, and he has the ability to hit some of those RPO plays in traffic that I, I don't, just don't think Clifford has the accuracy or the arm strength to do on a consistent basis or the combo of those two things. But yeah. Ohio State's going to put up 35 to 45. I mean, what we just saw with Alabama against Georgia is confirm what we said last year with LSU. If you're playing a top five offense now in college football, that team will score 35 to 45 points no matter how good you are. And the best defenses in the country will hold them to 40. Penn State is not equipped to score 40 points in regulation. And if they have to try to keep pace, you know, if they get behind 10 or 15 points in a game, like we saw with Indiana, they can snowball pretty quickly because Clifford just, he needs to be operating within the offense and taking what it's giving him. Um, because if he has to create and sort of make a play, I think things can crumble pretty quickly for them offensively. I, I like where this is headed. I like your uh, analysis so far. This makes me feel a little bit better. Um, but I want to talk about the two quarterbacks in the game this weekend. Starting first with Sean Clifford, I, I mentioned that the fact that Ohio State has long kind of been susceptible to running quarterbacks. I don't think that's an Ohio State specific problem. I think everybody is kind of susceptible to running quarterbacks, but it's really shown its head in the games when Ohio State's been upset. They gave up uh, 164 yards to Luke McCaffrey and Adrian Martinez uh, on Saturday for Nebraska. Sean Clifford had 119 yards rushing. Ohio State's defensive line is really thin. It's really young. The, the their linebackers are honestly not super great. Um, is there anything that the defense can do can take what they learned from trying to defend Martinez and McCaffrey and put that into a situation to stop Clifford from doing the same thing that he did against Indiana and gaining a hundred yards on the ground? In the modern era of football, I think it's just extremely difficult to contain running quarterbacks. And I'll give you an Ohio State example, right? So last year we talked about on our channel going into the playoff game, there was a big shift between what Ohio State looked like the first and second game against Wisconsin. And a lot of that was caused because in the first game, Fields was healthy. And And Fields was such a threat to run that Wisconsin knew they had to kind of keep a guy on the edge. And it was often a linebacker. Like they'd be in a 4 4 front. 
and one linebacker was essentially a backside spy to keep fields contained, which meant he was useless. Or they'd have a safety walked up and, and look like a 4-4 front, that kind of stuff. Um, and it really impairs you everywhere else in the field. Like, you know, if Dobbins got on the edge, you know, on the – they're kind of – a lot of times they're defending the backside play or, you know, a, a keep. Yeah. And if Dobbins got to the second level, you, you only got one safety and he's deep middle. So they wouldn't be in a position to make the tackle. The second game, Fields was injured. They realized that early on in the game, and they abandoned that approach. And they went to safety, uh, or they would keep you know the normal number of linebackers, and all of a sudden it became a lot harder for Ohio State offensively. And Ohio State was able to throw the ball and be successful, but they had to do it much more traditionally. You see the same thing with other teams, right? I mean, you can't really defend the running quarterback and these spread offenses and still really cover the RPO concepts because... Uh, it, it'd be one thing in the past where you had a running quarterback, but the problem with the RPO is if you're a safety, 10 years ago, you read the offensive line and you said, are they are they going downfield to block? And if they are, it's a run and I crash the alley. And that's how you take the quarterback out on those outside runs. Now, the entire scheme has changed. Safeties can't read the offensive line anymore because they can't trust that it's not going to eventually become a pass play, even though they're the run blocking. The safeties have to hold back. That means it's really hard, next to impossible, to actually fill that alley. And that's why uh, quarterbacks, in my opinion, have become almost unstoppable if they're dual threat. But, and here's the big but, you just kind of have to take it. I mean, I think, you know, Nebraska fans are frustrated. (laughs) Georgia fans are frustrated. Alabama fans are frustrated because their defenses are giving up all these points. It's, you know... It, like we cover a lot of SEC football uh, for our previews, and what Saban said several years ago is, "Is this what you want football to be? You're not going to stop Martinez, and you're not going to stop uh, Clifford from running the ball, and and it's going to frustrate a lot of people. But absent freakish edge talent that can consistently beat the uh, outside uh, tackle, which you had last year, because uh, you happen to have a pretty good edge rusher." You're just not going to stop it. Um, but the question is, can they do it consistently enough to march down the field and score? And that's the thing that I think you have to focus on is that Ohio State did it, was able to create some negative plays at times. And they were able to play enough bend but don't break that they gave up some of those runs, but they didn't turn into touchdown after touchdown, right? You only gave yeah. up two touchdowns in the game. And as long as you're doing that and you're putting up 45 points in a game, that's how you win championships now. Um, that's, that's what, again, that's what Saban said last week, right? The era of defense winning championships is over. You are not going to stop that play ever with a good athlete. Um, you just have to stop it enough that, you know, they can't hit their 40 point mark and you hit your 40 point mark. And, and the, when the time expires, that's that's modern football now. Yeah. And to answer Coach Saban's question. Uh, yeah, that's what I want. That's uh, that's a lot more fun than watching a defensive struggle, uh, at least for me. So uh, so let's move over to Justin Fields. He had what really was uh, a remarkable game, although it did not look all that different than games he had last year. He was 20 for 21, 276 yards passing, two touchdowns. He also added in 54 yards on the ground um, with one uh, touchdown rushing. His one incompletion hit Chris Olave in the hands in the end zone. He kind of got upended it and ended up dropping it. Um, He had one other bad throw that was negated by pass interference, but he has really continued to show some progress from the beginning of his sophomore year, his first uh, season at Ohio State last year to now where he just looks like I, I don't want to I don't want to use this term frivolously or hyperbolically, but he looks damn near perfect. I think the reality for uh, Ohio State is obviously they had one of the best uh, quarterback performances in the country last year, particularly before Fields got hurt. And he's only playing better this year. Um, I, I It's 
hard for me to take too much from a given game, though. I, with Nebraska, yeah, with Nebraska, they clearly were playing the run, right? And I think Ohio State fans were a little frustrated at times. And we even, you know, we tweeted something that, hey, you know, Trey Sermon's going to get his. We think Sermon's a dude, um, but you know, you didn't necessarily see that aspect to it. And I, I think it's just pretty much straight up. Nebraska was playing the run almost exclusively. Now, does that mean Fields is going to have bad days? No, but. You know, maybe 20 for 21 isn't, you know, 95% passing is not realistic oh, for the rest of the season. Uh, <laughs> every game all season? Yeah, yeah come on. Yeah, I, I don't think that's going to happen every game. And particularly, you're playing a Nebraska defense that was terrible last year, right? But I, I think you're going to consistently see good performances. And again, the challenge with Fields in the challenge with Ohio State, and I would say it's pretty much, pretty much a unique thing this season, is it's impossible to take away one aspect in terms of, let's say, the run game and not give up a ton in the passing game. I mean, Lawrence is a mobile guy, um, but he's not a true runner. I mean, he's a really good athlete that can run if you leave him uncovered, but he's not going to run through contact and, uh, you know, like a he, like a running back would. We talk a lot that, you know, there's guys that are good athletes and can run, and then there's guys that are natural runners. Fields is the latter. He could play running back or receiver. You know, Trevor Lawrence really couldn't. Um, he's fast, but that's kind of it. Fields can do both in a way Alabama can't, in a way Clemson can't, in a way Oklahoma, I don't know, given all their issues, I'm not sure what you want to say they can do right now. Um, So it's a unique problem. Um, And I think with Fields, you're going to see days where he runs over a team and you're going to see days where he throws them to death. And I think teams are going to spend the first half of the season trying to figure out which poison they want to pick because they know if they do it balanced, they're just going to get killed in both ways. Um, And Nebraska tried to take away the run and, and got killed over the top. That that's really interesting to think about. They they're gonna have to pick one. We often hear, especially even in baseball, like you hear, don't let X player beat you. Um, when the that X person in football is a quarterback who can do both ways, it's it really is like uh, uh, picking your poison as to uh, how you want to be destroyed. You mentioned Trevor Lawrence, and and that brings up a, a really interesting topic that is v- very specific to twenty twenty. Because there was very limited non-conference games and, you know, none really for a lot of the Power Five conferences, when it comes to the advanced analytics that you normally look at, whether that's um, your own model or SP Plus or whatever, is there any way to compare what is happening in the Big Ten to what's happening with Clemson in the ACC or Alabama in the SEC? Or do you just kind of have to take things as they are and be conference specific and then extrapolate in your own mind rather than actually doing it with data since there really isn't anything to cross reference between conferences. So Brian from O actually asked me that question on Twitter last week. Uh, and my response was, I think you have to look at data pretty much entirely intra conference, you know, internal to a conference. I, you're probably aware that our channel really pushes the fact that we'd like to see more meaningful out-of-conference games. We really believe yeah. that there's not a ton of conference parity. I think that gets proven every year. Last year, it was the Big 12. We flagged the Big 12 going into the postseason had n- not a single, I think it was no win over a winning record out-of-conference. Um, and so we kind of said, look, you need to be careful. It's a house of cards. And it may turn out the whole conference is bad or they may be really great. We don't know because when they played a couple good teams, they lost them. You know, Texas has lost to LSU. was probably the best one they played. Um, and it ended up being that they were terrible in postseason play. <laughs> this year, it's kind of the one year where I would be, if you wanted to just say we're going to do, you know, automatic qualifiers, I'd be okay with it because it's impossible yeah. to make any any judgment calls. 
Um, and, you know, in terms of advanced stats, you know, they may be relational. They may be based on strength of schedule. But it's a pretty obvious mathematical problem, right? That no matter how I want to run a matrix, no one in the SEC has played anyone in any other conference. And I can't tell you if their statistics are good or bad. I can't tell you if the yeah. 14th best team in the SEC is better than the first best. It is literally like comparing FCS statistics to Big Ten statistics. Um, the only problem is I don't know which one is which. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in you know, it also I'll say it happens in a micro sense. So I'll turn this conversation a little bit myself. You know, the opening week, Mississippi State destroyed LSU, and everybody's immediate reaction was, "Oh, wow, look how good Mississippi State is." Our channel, we did a top ten that week, and we refused to put Mississippi State in it. We got a lot of flack for that, and you know, my rationale was, "Look, they didn't have any spring practice. They're running a system offense." There were already a couple of people pointing out stuff that had been done wrong by LSU in that game. And I didn't believe a team that had almost no receiving talent and a shaky quarterback that had lost his job at Stanford and was running a system that they had tried to implement in three weeks was actually that good offensively. I just didn't believe that was possible. Um, and it turned out LSU was terrible. And and yeah. everybody's immediate reaction is always positive in the media, which I get. But that's what it is. And, and I'll say even like in the Big Ten, Michigan just blew out Minnesota. And I think a lot of Ohio State fans will appreciate me saying this. I like Milton. We were real. We were never high on Patterson. We had a lot of content talking about why we weren't high on Patterson even before he started. Um, but I think you've got to be careful in not assuming that Minnesota may be way worse than we anticipate. They replaced seven starters on defense. We talked in our two previews for the Ohio State game and the Michigan game that defensive continuity has been the biggest indicator of early success. And teams like LSU that lost a ton were terrible. Teams like Georgia that returned them. Uh, return guys, regardless of talent level, returning veterancy was really important. Minnesota only returned four guys on the defense. And it may be that Minnesota's defense is atrocious. We we just don't know. So even relative to your own conference for this first couple weeks, you got to be really careful, but certainly in the national landscape, I mean, we just, we have no idea and we won't have any idea really until the bubble season. Yeah. I personally was much on the bandwagon of if no year other than this, this is the perfect year to go to an 18 playoff or even a 16 playoff and just let all the power fives uh, have their champion be automatically in because how the, the college football playoff committee is going to really break down teams that are super close is going to be mind numbing for a lot of fan bases because unless it's a clear cut here's four undefeateds and that's it i think it's going to be a lot of hand wringing and arguing going on in late december well, well but, and i can i can give you a fun little st stat there oh, too yeah let's do it okay so in 2016 okay the sec had uh you know 14 teams only four of the 14 teams had a winning record in conference play um we talk a lot about this idea of a bag of wins and you're going to see this in the big 10 this year. You have a fixed number of wins and losses. Okay. It doesn't matter how good the conference is or how bad they are. You've got a fixed number of wins and losses and how they get distributed this year is not a reflection on how good the conference is. It's merely reflection on if two or three teams are just a lot better than the rest or whether they're all equal. Cause yeah. you could have, yeah. you know, they could all be in a, it's just like the NFL, right? They could all be NFL teams and they're all going to be like, three, you know, five and three might be the best in the division. And it could be literally the, you know, 85 bears. But if they're playing all the best teams in the world um, all in one season, you're not going to see that in win loss. And like with the SEC in particular, uh, the conversation I had with somebody last week was, you know, they're going to have 70 wins and 70 losses. If you assume Alabama goes 10 and 0 
and you assume A&M, Florida, and Georgia go 8-2, and two, those teams will account for 34 of the 70 wins, which wow. means there's only 36 wins to be given out among 10 teams. They're all going to average... You know, three and seven to four and six. That's going to be the average record outside the four teams at the top. Wow. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're all horrible teams because they finished three and seven. It just means there were three teams, you know, four teams that were better than the rest, and the rest of them have to fight over the remaining wins. You're going to see that this year in the Big Ten. You're going to see it probably, you're not like in the ACC, everybody's win loss is going to be terrible because Clemson and Notre Dame are going to dominate all season. And they're going to take all these wins that no one else can have and everybody else's record's bad as a result. And so to add to what you're saying about the committee, how do you deal with that point, right? With like with bowl yeah. selection and playoff selection? Because if you talk about how many teams with a winning record did you beat, that's it's meaningless. Like it, it really means absolutely absolutely nothing. Because there are gonna be very there will be very, very few teams this year that actually have a winning record. Probably usually P five teams get their winning record by winning three teams in G five. Or in you know an FCS if you're SEC or what have you, this year I'm gonna guess probably around 65 percent, 60 65 percent of P5 will have a losing record. That's nuts. That's nuts. But uh, yeah, we've talked about this and we've seen some other people talk about it. Like you have to think about teams that finish in the Big Ten specifically. You know, three and five. That's usually a team that's you know potentially you know seven and five or or you know whatever. It's it's a much different landscape this year. When you're judging not only your opponents, but for other fan bases, you know, judging your own program, you can't think that if you're three and five and you have a couple good wins in conference, that your con- that your season has been a disaster. Because in a regular year, you'd be thinking, ah, you know, we did okay. You know, we were seven and five in the regular season, go on to a bowl game and get that eighth win. But 2020 is just so damn weird. It's uh never stops messing with your mind. But um, Josh, I want to get you out on this. I we kind of talked about what week one could potentially tell us about week two for Ohio State and Penn State. So with all of this conversation that we've had, um, I know I don't know if you guys are going to do a video specific to this game um, or if you're just going to make a pick at some point. And so save that for your own video. But what general thoughts do you have for this Saturday's game uh, when it relates to what we should expect between the Buckeyes and Nittany Lions? So I'll give you two aspects of it. The first is what I'm going to be looking for in the game. The second is kind of what I expect to happen. I'll be looking to see how Ohio State's offense reacts to Penn State's defense. I think Penn State's defense is really good. I mean, Indiana, you you look at that final score, one, that was in overtime, two, it was caused by uh, offensive turnovers. Penn State allowed 4.7 yards per attempt and 1.6 yards per carry. Indiana did nothing in that game offensively. So, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say this will be the biggest challenge Ohio State has offensively all season. Totally. And in yeah, yeah. honestly, with Ohio State, I'm kind of looking almost more to the playoffs. And people know if you follow our channel, we evaluate you based off your expectation or where you want to arrive. And I want to look at Ohio State thinking how they're going to play against down Alabama or Clemson or Georgia or whoever. Um, and and that's what I'm going to be kind of most curious about. Um my expectation is related to the other side of the ball. I, I just think when push comes to shove, Ohio State is going to get some points on the board. And at a certain point, probably in the second or third quarter, Ohio State's going to have a lead. And from what I've seen from Penn State, I think when they start playing from behind, 
they're just not well equipped to run their offense. They have to stay balanced. They've got to be doing RPO concepts because they have to be giving Clifford an advantage in the passing game when they're in sort of, you know, traditional passing situations. Um, they don't react well. Uh, and the problem for them is they don't, they didn't really run it that well against Indiana. The main back forward was only three and a half yards per carry. Um, I think they're going to struggle to maintain balance, and I think they're going to have to lean on the passing game. And from what I've seen with Clifford, and given the overall athleticism Ohio State has, yeah, you're going to give up some big chunk plays because it's impossible not to. I yeah. think this game is going to get away from Penn State at a certain point. You know, there's a reason the line, what is it now? It's 10 and a half Ohio State. And that's a high line. Um, maybe it doesn't seem that high given the loss if you're a really casual fan, but it it's really is a high line if, if you were – looking at your expectations preseason, I almost wonder if it's too low. Um, I, I think the final result, like this may be a tight game for two to three quarters. I don't think it's going to end that tight. Um, I, I do think Ohio State's going to win this game and probably pretty handily. Um, and I think a lot of Penn State fans are going to be going into week three, really questioning a lot of stuff um, just because it's, yeah. you know, the, the real truth. And this was the truth last year. We got blasted all last year from it with Penn State fans. Their offense is not great. And in, in, in the modern era, fo- modern era of football, where where good teams score a lot of points, you can't really be a high level team and be limited offensively. Um, we saw it last year with Georgia. We're seeing it this year again with Georgia. Um, Georgia is, in a lot of metrics, Georgia is actually the most talented team in the country. They're more. They have had better recruiting the past three years than Alabama and Ohio State. And they don't look like they're on the same level. And this, the simple answer is their defense is awesome, and their talent is really heavily defensive play, defensively based. They have real issues at quarterback. Their receiving core, which has a lot of five stars, are not quite up to the billing, and they're they're just not as good on that side of the ball. And you can't afford to be. Um, and I think that's the reality for Penn State in this game. However much, like I've said a lot in recent games, and I said this in the Georgia game, you know, I don't think the gap in Alabama and Georgia, and I didn't think there there was more than fifteen percent overall quality player to player but because it was on the offensive side of the ball the reality and scoring i thought was more like a 50 percent difference i same issue here I, I don't know that penn state is that far behind ohio state um in terms of just overall team quality per se but their offense isn't that good and that means i think the scoring differential could be like 50 percent well, I definitely love your projection for this game. I also imagine that Georgia really wishes it had a really great dual threat quarterback that they could lean on this season, but I'm glad that they don't. Um, but anyway, Josh, I really appreciate you breaking all this stuff down. I love your videos. We've talked about them. I, you guys are part of, we do a podcast every Saturday morning to get people ready for the games. Uh, and in our advanced metric section, anytime you guys cover an Ohio State game, we always talk about what you guys project. So we are big fans of uh, college football nerds. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time for the second year in a row to kind of jump on here and break down a really big game for the Buckeyes. Yeah, anytime. Um, we enjoy it. And, uh, you know, this is, for us, this is very much a fun hobby like it is for a lot of other people. And any excuse I get to talk about football, uh, I'm going to take it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Land Grant Holy Land In Conversation. Also, thanks, of course, to Josh from College Football Nerds. You can follow them on Twitter at CFB Nerds. And you can find all of their videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash college football nerds. 
If you are finding this episode on the Land Grant Holy Land website, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We are releasing a different podcast episode every single day of the college football season, Monday through Sunday, and they all have vastly different focuses and perspectives. I guarantee there will be no feed like ours, for better or worse, in the Ohio State podcasting universe this season. Also, don't forget to follow Land Grant Holy Land on Twitter at LandGrant33. You can find me at BWWMATT. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. And go Bucks.